If you take your Bibles, turn to Matthew. Just for starters, we're going to be in a number of passages. I don't always do that very much, actually. But tonight we're going to. The synoptic gospels, what, what do I mean when I say synoptic? This, what are the synoptic gospels? Tell me. Yes, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not John. So in the synoptic gospels, all, have, all of them have elements of this theme, exile and exodus. And this motif is throughout the, all the pages, really. I'll, I'll try to show you, and I'm going to show you quite a list of them, and it's purposely to try to overwhelm you to some degree, but there's much more than what I'm going to tell you tonight, just to let you know. Um, so all three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, have these things that even John does. We're not going to concentrate on his as much. But here's the thing, is that I want to talk to you about exile, Exile was a condition that Israel would be in when they were made by God, and he actually uses on a couple of occasions the word vomit. He would vomit them out of the land. They had become so disobedient, so much into idolatry, that basically he would puke them out of the land of Israel, the promised land, and then they would be exiled outside of it, and they would have foreign countries, powers that would rule over them. And that was always a sign that they had been disobedient. In the genealogy of Jesus, if you're there in Matthew 1, you may be familiar with this. If you're interested in, uh, to be a little bit of a Bible geek per se, there is a book that just came out this year, a handful of months ago at the most. It's all the genealogies of the Bible. And you think, wow, that sounds super boring. You would be wrong because it is a, it's about this thick. It has pictures, graphs all kinds of stuff in it, but it tells you all the significance of all the genealogies, how they tie together, how God uses it to really put the Bible all together and why they're significant. It is a very good, slightly expensive resource. I think it's about 35 to 40 bucks, but it'd be well worth it. You'd spend a lot of time in it as a resource that was extra. No promo. I get nothing for that. Um, Chapter 1, verse 11, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So we're marking time, and you'll see why. This is a genealogical point because we're talking about why Jesus is the Christ. Remember, Christ always means king, Messiah. So we're going to prove from the patriarchs to the judges to the king that he is the rightful ruler of Israel. But the way we mark it in the middle is there's a certain time it comes that, and the break is exile in Babylon. He also says that, Matthew does, at the end of the genealogy when he wants to summarize the entire thing in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David, king, were 14, and from David to the deportation of Babylon. See, there it is, 14. But watch. And from the deportation to Babylon, the third time, in this genealogy, he mentions exile to Christ, 14 generations. And what he wants you to assume is this. The exile is still happening. The exile was from 14 generations back until now, and the crisis come on the scene. And you can read literature of that day. You could read commentators who look back on that day. Both of them would say this, that even though they were in the land of Israel, they were still in exile. Why? Because the Romans ruled them. 
and you can be in the land, but if the Romans rule you, why? Because what is one of the parts of the definition of exile? Is that if there's someone ruling over you other than God, it's because of disobedience. And so they were still exiled even though they were in the land. And what they needed is a new deliverance from exile. And as some commentators say, they needed a new exodus. They needed a new deliverance. They needed the king to come, the promised king, who would finally give them the freedom and the deliverance that they had always been looking for. So with that genealogy starting out Matthew's gospel and that thought in mind, you can go through all of Matthew, Luke, and the other ones, and I'm going to show you some of the things, and you'll see things about the exodus story and the exile story that appears through People that are mentioned often, events that are, sim- that are very similar to the Exodus, very things that Moses himself has mentioned and what he did and how that compares to Jesus, and the Passover. I'm going to show you a number of things to, so that when you read the Gospels, the synoptics especially, a little bit differently maybe because of tonight, you'll see that the Exodus and the exile story are a huge part of what Jesus came to do. So let me just start listing them for you. There's probably no other better way to say it. There are story associations I wrote down that can be found all the way through these that emphasize these two motifs. One of it is, and I'll get you to see if you can know a few of them. You do. You just don't think of them in this way. Jesus' birth and Moses' birth. How were they similar? What happened to both of them that were virtually the same? At the time of their birth. Yes, yeah, see? Theology, theology here. Yes, the baby's being killed, right? So at the birth of both the deliverers, they have a murderous you know, attack on little children. Very much the same. And you can read that in Exodus 1 and Matthew 2. Both of them leave their country for a while, and then eventually they return. And so Matthew wants you to understand this so much so that when Moses had to return, it says, this is the quote, those who sought your life are dead. When Joseph is told that he can go back to Israel now, the the messenger says what to him? You can return to Israel now because those who sought your life are dead. Is an exact quotation. Why? Because they... The writers are trying to get you to think down certain roads. Jesus returns to Israel as a fulfillment. And Hosea 11.1, if you know this one, then this is really good. Any pastor who wants to jump in can. There is a quotation from Hosea 11.1 that Jesus fulfills, and it is all about Exodus. Do you remember what it says? Anyone? You don't have to be a pastor, by the way. Come on, Tim, it's on the tip of your tongue. I can see it. There you go. Pastor Tim got it right. Out of Egypt, I have called my son, which is Hosea is reminding them that they need a new, a new exodus from exile all the way back in his prophecy. But the Bible says that's collectively used of Israel. But in Matthew's gospel, it's used singularly of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is Israel. He's the perfect Israel. And he is going to bring them out of exile with a new exodus. That is there as well. Moses did a couple amazing... What, when you think of what he did, the two things, miraculous things that happened under Moses' ministry, they were, are what? 
One has to do with water. It is parting of the Red Sea. The other one has to do with bread, and that was the manna. Did Jesus do any miracles that were correlating with that? Did Jesus do anything famous on water? What? Yes, he walked on water. Did he do anything famous with bread? Yes, 5,000 and the, the 4,000, right? Why are those repeated? Did you know at the end of John's gospel, it says, if we told you all about the miracles, all the miracles Jesus did, what does John say? Yes, the world itself could not contain the books. So what we know about all the miracles of Jesus is there are many, many more that we don't know of, so they were purposely selected. And so the miracles that talk about the similarities that Jesus was to Moses and the wine, I mean, in, in, the, in the bread and the water, those are purposely chosen, not accidental by any stretch of them. There are similarities, again, Jesus and Israel. How long was Jesus, I mean, I should say Israel, how long were they in the wilderness wandering? 40 years. How long was Jesus tempted in the wilderness? Yes, on purpose. I would tell you because they're drawing again to that illusion of wilderness theme. Moses was up on the Mount Sinai in the glory cloud himself. And when he was up in the glory cloud, what happened to him? When he came back down, people were kind of, how do I say? Yeah, his what? Yes, his face was transfigured, right? He got, so Jesus is up on a mountain, and he's in the glory cloud of God. What happens to his face? Shines like lightning. And who happens to be on the mountain when he's been transfigured? Moses, right? Not accidents, because they're, they're wanting you to pick up a theme. When they were delivered the first time for the first exodus, what was the covenantal meal that inaugurated and celebrated that deliverance? Yes, the Passover meal. When Jesus would bring the second exodus and inaugurate the new covenant, what meal was it that was one that was used at that point? The Passover, yes, they both had very, very special. The first Passover and truthfully the fulfillment of the Passover, all of them happened. There's Jesus' death. If you want to write this down, this one, Jesus' death in Luke chapter 9 and verse 31, it says that he set his face toward Jerusalem because of the departure that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. And the word departure is the Greek word literally exodus. His death is pictured as an exodus. And he is, his death will be the deliverance that brings God's people out of bondage. When Jesus died in the Holy of Holies in the temple, what happened? When he said, it is finished, what happened? The veil was torn in two. The veil was... About 30 feet wide and weighed about 3,000 pounds. It took 300 men, not 300, I'm sorry. It, yeah, yeah, maybe, I'm sorry. It took over 300 men, if I have that right, to move it and to put it up. It was very heavy. The Bible explicitly says 
that when it was torn, it was torn how? Why does that matter? Yes, because God had to do that because it was as high, pretty high, right? So God did it, right? And so what does the veil and the Holy of Holies represent? Why is the veil there between the Holy of Holies? Yes, separation. You cannot go there. So when you are exiled, and that's why our song saying lonely exile, because you're separated, right? So the veil, when it was torn in two, what does it say about what Jesus did when he died? He has made it possible to be with God again. The separation has ended overshadowed, last one. And again, I'm, I've, I've picked out 20 tonight for you, but there's probably more like 75. So if you think I said a lot tonight, I didn't know any of those. Well, there's many, many more than that. Overshadowed, right? What, what, do you remember how that verb is used at all in the Bible, Old Testament? What happened when you were on the, in the glory cloud? You were overshadowed, right? The glory cloud was what led them out of Egypt. It what lit up at nighttime. It's what protected them from the Egyptians when they left. And so God's glory cloud was there and it overshadowed them. Remember in Luke 9 when they had the transfiguration and Peter was there and it says they went into the glory cloud and the glory cloud overshadowed them. It's the same verb used in Luke 135 that is how Mary became impregnated with Jesus. The glory of God, he says, will overshadow you, the Holy Spirit of God. And, and so what is it, what does overshadowing mean? That when Jesus is put into Mary's womb, that what is God doing? Oh, he's bringing his holy presence into the world to offer freedom and deliverance. And you could go on and on about these types of things. So let me tell you our outline tonight. The ex, the uh, Exile takes place in three ways. You can write them down. There is a national exile, which is primarily geographically. There's a spiritual exile, which Jesus is solving for them. And he does it, number three, by a new exodus. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I want to show you how the, I should say the apostles used this understanding of what I tried to tell you is prominent in each of the synoptics. 1 Peter chapter 1. There are other places you could look. These are the most obvious. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Write down this, that being in exile is an identity marker. It's a spiritual identity. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So it is a identity. It is who we are. Now, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, if you put your faith and trust in him tonight, in some sense, your exile is over. You're no longer separated from God spiritually, but spatially you still are because you're not home to be with him yet. So in some sense, the exile is over in some in another sense it's still out there for us and peter says while you're still exiled here on earth away from home you should live differently so 
all the exiles talk we've had tonight so far is not just, oh, isn't that cool, and that's in there, and that's really neat. It has really powerful implications for our life if you will see yourself as part of this story. Here's the first one, chapter 1 and verse 17. And if you call on him, 1 Peter 1, 17, as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So here's what you do. If my identity is I know Jesus, he's the king who came to deliver me, and through his death and resurrection, I've been freed from exile, here's what will be true. I will live differently than everybody else around me. Read any of the exilic portions of Scripture and the prophets, Daniel and other places. The reason they were always in exile is before, because they were countercultural. They weren't countercultural. They were very cultural. They followed the Babylonians. They did whatever they did. They worshiped their gods. And every time that they were in trouble and they got exiled and vomited out of the land, it was because they were disobedient. They didn't have God as the center of everything in their life. And he says... Listen, the Gentiles are surrounding you. You're a a corrupt culture, but you're an exile. You have a different identity because of what Jesus has done for you. Therefore, he says, live differently. All right? Hold on to that one. There's one more. Chapter 2, verse 11. And now we're going to get an outline, and we're going to get some serious application. Ready? Chapter 1, verse, sorry, chapter 2, verse 11. I'm going to start with verse 9. 2.9, but you are, because it's an identity passage, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once, this is Hosea chapter 1, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. See the once, but now you are changed. You are different. Jesus has freed you from exile. You have been delivered You need to live that way. Verse 11, our text. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, again, and exiles. First thing you have to do, and there's only two in our outline tonight. To be a spiritual exile, you have to learn to say no, and you have to learn to say yes. Let me do no first. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. You're going to go over to Hebrews chapter 11 in a little bit, in verses 13 through 16, the other exiles passage, and they both start out with this, passions. They start out with the desires, and then they talk secondarily about conduct. Look at verse 12 of our first Peter passage. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So live a certain way, but before you can worry about the deeds that an exile should do, you have to worry about the desires of an exile. Can I tell you this? Please listen. It couldn't be any more important. There is a war on your wants going on every day. It is a war not just that you might live a different or a better kind of Christian life and be more happy. It's not like that. This is a war against your soul. You can't get any... And let me tell you, you know where the war starts? 
Not when your kids grow up and drink alcohol or your kids grow up and be, you know, experiment with drugs or sex or anything. You know, those are expressions of it. But where the war really starts is on the inside. See, that's where, as an exile, we are all the time. And the passage says, abstain from fleshly passions or desires, it says, of the flesh. That's what is happening constantly about our kids. The goal of parenting is not just to get your kids to not do bad things, but is to want and desire really good things. Desiring is the core, really. Augustine said this, love, but be careful what you love. So he doesn't want you to stop feeling or desiring or wanting, but he wants you to be incredibly careful. Do you teach your kids that? See, it's hard, isn't it? Because they're bombarded by TV commercials and movies and magazines and billboards and all kinds of stuff on a regular basis. And they are not just about getting your kids to want to do things you don't want them to. Because I can tell you this. They're getting them to want them. They want a new phone. (laughs) How about Christmas time, right? Is this not a time where you get what you want? Right? I want this for, I want this, I want this. Did you hear? And I'm going to use your story. She wasn't supposed to have the makeup, but she wanted it. I knew I wasn't supposed to take the matchbox cars, but I had two spots left in my box that had no car in them. Right? And I wanted it. Did I know that it was wrong to shoplift? Yes. Did I know I was taking the risk that my dad would get out the paddle? And I might die? (laughs) Yes. Did I know I might get caught? Yes. Did I do it anyways? Yes. Did you ever do that? Do you know why we eat too much sometimes? Ready? Because we want to. Do you know why you look at the wrong things when you have a chance on the internet? Because you want to. Oh, it's it's not because of how you were brought up Primarily, it's not. It's not because we had an opportunity and that temptation, I wasn't ready. No, you know what it really is? When it comes down to it, it's because I want to. I lie about something to make myself look better and seem better to other people. You know why? Because I want to. That's where the war is. Do you have a plan? Listen, adults, do you have a plan to fight the war for your wants? How do you do it? Isn't that why we spend too much money and have credit card debt? Isn't that we live in houses and own cars we can't afford? Right? Why? Because we want it. We just really want it. So here's what he says. Here's the war. If you're in exile, this is your identity. And you know how you live counterculturally? It doesn't start, I just, and you know what, and fundamentalism, it's just that, you know, oh, I don't do this, and I don't have this, and I don't wear this, and I don't have this on my, and I don't, and I don't, and I don't. And I don't. Yeah, there is some no. There's definitely no. It says abstain. It means to move yourself, put yourself distance between the two. And there is always no. But let me tell you this. There is more than holiness by subtraction is half the equation. And if we go around telling our kids, you know what, you'll be, just don't make mommy and daddy look bad. 
right? You ever had people you had to deal with? I know at the school, church, otherwise we have. You know, we talk to people, and you know what they're really concerned with? Not because their kid's getting in trouble. Their kid is making them look bad, like bad parents. And they're really upset by it, not because their kid might turn out wrong, but they're worried about it for them. Here's what he says. Our greatest battle, it's not an external war, it's an internal war. And so he says to us, live a certain way. And now, can I put verse 12 in there, though? Keep your conduct. The outside does matter. Keep it honorable so that when you speak, you're spoken of as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. Listen to this. And glorify God in the day of visitation. That is used a dozen times in the Bible. The very first two uses are Joseph when he says, when God delivers you in the exodus, take my bones and put them in Israel. But the term he uses at the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus is visitation. You know what he's saying here? Hey, when God comes back and the new, see, the new Exodus is complete and he comes back, you know what you want to be able to say? You stand before him because, and, and you can say this, God's not ashamed because, but here's how it works. Good desires lead to good deeds. You see how he says it? Don't desire this so that you can have good conduct. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith. Who is he talking about? Well, the people right before him in the first few verses of this chapter, mainly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, they all died in faith. What does that mean? It meant, meant this, that they didn't have the, receive the things promised. They had been given the promises, but they hadn't been fulfilled yet. They were still waiting for it. But watch, and this is a theme. Study Hebrews 11 for yourself. And do it with the words see, look, all the visual terms. Because faith sees the invisible. And if you're going to be in exile, you have to be able to have a different set of eyes. You have to be able to see the spiritual. And here's what he says. Verse 13. They received the promises, but having seen them and greeted them. It actually is the word to greet or welcome. From afar, as at a distance. I'm going to try to dramatize it for you a little bit. This is like, this is a strong desire passage, just like the other one. It's like this. It's like you see your wife coming down, and she's way out there, and she's far away from you, but you say you're so excited, you're waiting for her to get here. Why? Because your life is all about her coming, being with you, and you're looking at her, and you're, oh, you're so excited. Why? Because this is what I really want. And you say, wow, I'm right here, but you know what? Being right here and doing all this right now is nothing, what, until she's here. Because I don't belong here unless she's here. Why? Because we belong together. And when you have, see, it's a strong desire. So they're having these promises, and they see them far off. But they, that's what those promises offer them is what they really want the most. I'll see the difference. That's why, listen, listen, please listen. Salvation to so many people is just a decision intellectually that I assent to the facts about who Jesus is and what he's done. 
Can I tell you, it's more than just a mental act of agreement. It's your desires. Do you know why the rich young ruler said he didn't basically want eternal life? Because Jesus says, hey, follow me or money. And he went away sad. Why? Because he wanted money more than Jesus. Jesus wasn't his treasure. Jesus describes it in the parables of the kingdom. He says, you know what it is? It's like you find a treasure hidden in a field. Listen, and you go and sell all you have so that you can have it. Why? Because it doesn't just change. It's not just a decision. It's a desire. And there's so many people, please hear me, they're fooling themselves to think that you could be a Christian and have none of these desires and truly know him. You don't really have a desire to come to church. You don't really have a desire to read your Bible, to pray. You don't have a desire to evangelize. You don't have a desire to live holy. Can I tell you this? It's not just a new destiny when you get saved. They are new desires followed by new deeds. They are. It's what it produces. You see, these people had it. They looked forward and said, hey, I know what I have now, but look over there down the road. That's what I really want. That's my real desire. And it says this, they have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, that they weren't really home, that this isn't where they settled in. They were waiting for something better. Look what it says it is, verse 14. For people who speak this way, look at the verb, make it clear. It's not shadowy. It's not unclear. It's not, it's not hard to find out. See, when you have a decision and that decision has a desire, it's not unclear. It's not, uh, look at them. I can't even tell that they have any desires. It's never like, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. You see, they're pursuing it. Your life should have a trajectory that you're pursuing God. You want him, you desire him, heaven and all it has. And this is not where your homeland is. And if they had been thinking of that land by which they had gone, verse 15, out, they would have had an opportunity to return. See, they, they're not Lot's wife. Lot's wife had a desire for Sodom. And though she was taken out of it, she was still in it. And that's what the passage is trying to teach us here. They had an opportunity to return, but they weren't, they weren't thinking that way. It wasn't what they wanted. It wasn't what consumed their thoughts and minds. But as it is, verse 16, and I'll close, they desire, let's see, circle it. Seeking is, a, is an internal word. Desire it. They wanted a better country. It is a comparison between the two. Can I tell you this? I wrote it down on my paper. Faith considers what the world has to offer, and then it considers next to it side by side, what the promises of God have to offer, offer, and they have the desire to choose the one over the other. You know why that your kids can't choose the city of God over the city of man? Because they don't have the ability to want it. Neither one of my boys, they knew church, they knew the Bible, they knew the gospel, they sat here. They never had a desire for what mattered. You can't supply want and desire, can you, for people? And especially it's true with your salvation. God has to do that. See, what 
you get, you get saved, you get new desires, you get new sources of satisfaction. You find a new treasure. And when you do, nothing short of heaven and all of its glory in Jesus Christ will ever be enough to satisfy you. What does it look like when you have that kind of faith, when you have that kind of exile lifestyle? You, you have the ability to build an ark in the middle of the desert over the course of a century. Though everybody mocks and ridicules you. See? Because you have a different treasure. It doesn't matter what anyone else says and how stupid it looks to everybody else. You have the ability to build a crib when you're 90. Because you believe differently. You see differently. You act differently. You have the ability to lay a knife to the throat of the most prized possession on earth you have, your son. You know why? Because you have faith. You have new desires, new satisfactions, and it causes you to do things that most people won't understand. You know why? Because they don't have the same identity. They don't have the same desires. Not at all. And that's why, lastly, finally, therefore, verse 16, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. My time is up, but let me give you both. Why would God not be ashamed? Here's why. Put it together. Because the word therefore points before it. And in the sentence, the word for points after it. Put them both together. And here's why God's not ashamed of people. Because he has made you a city better than anything you have here. And you know why he's not ashamed? Because the last part of the verse says, and because you want that city. He's prepared it. And you want it. And that makes him unashamed of you. Oh, what happens to us? Where are we? What about our children? Do they know how great heaven is? They know the city he's prepared. Do they think it's better? Or all the friends and the fun and the entertainment and the sin, maybe they think it's better here because they have no taste of heaven, because they have no desire for it. Or maybe they just don't see it in you and I. I'll see, he says, you know why I'm, you know the people I'm not ashamed of? That they desire me and heaven and all that goes with it supremely above everyone and everything else. That's what exiles do. That's what makes them different. That's what makes them countercultural. That's what makes them stand out and have a God who's not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight for your word. We long to be exiles. We're thankful, Jesus, that you came and you brought with you through your death and resurrection a new exodus. And you delivered us, freed us. But Father, as the song says, we're not home yet. We're not home. Oh, we seek that homeland. May we seek it. Even as the psalmist says, your loving kindness is better than life. Therefore, my lips will praise you. Oh, Lord, may you be better to us than anyone or anything. May we love you more than our spouse. May we love you more than our children. May we love you more than a raise. May we love you more than any car or any house. May we love you more than not getting cancer. May we love you more than not being crippled. May we love you more than having a retirement that we need. May we love you more than anyone or anything else. And may it be clear. May it be clear that you are supreme in the affections of our heart, that there is no rival treasures that could ever match up to your infinite value and worth. 
May we live that kind of life as exiles for Jesus. For it's in his name we ask it. Amen. You are dismissed.